What's up, everybody? Good afternoon. Welcome to Thoughts of the Week podcast, or you can say audio cast or sound cast, whichever cast you want to add into it. We are live. All right. Thoughts of the Week podcast. Today, I'm not, like I mentioned yesterday or last night, we're doing a Black History Month series of Black History information. And uh, for the entire the rest of the rest of this month, we're going to do Black History information so that people know the contributions of Black folks. All right. Even if they want to deny it being so. And a lot of other secrets regarding black history as well. All right. The good, the bad, the ugly. OK, so. Today, we're going to talk about three gentlemen or three men. We don't even know if they're gentlemen. All right. We're going to talk about Ed Johnson. Styles Hutchins and Randolph Miller. I would probably say they're gentlemen, though. All right. Again, we're going to talk about today. We're going to go into Ed Johnson, Styles Hutchins, and Randolph Miller. You're going to know who they are and what went on with them. All right. And we're going to go into the book. Here's the book right here African Americans of Chattanooga, A History of Unsung Heroes by Rita Lorraine Hubbard. So y'all go ahead and support that sister. Get the book. Again, we're going to go into this book with the three gentlemen here. Randolph Miller, Styles Hutchins. And Ed Johnson. All right. Again, we're going into this book here. You guys see on the screen. And for those listening, the name of the book is called African-Americans of Chattanooga. That's Chattanooga, Tennessee. All right. A History of Unsung Heroes by Rita Lorraine Hubbard. All right. So with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, you are definitely rocking with the best thoughts of the week. Let's get it. Do you know what you're listening to? You're listening to Thoughts of the Week. Oh, how's that? <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, what's up again? This is Thoughts of the Week podcast, and I'm going to do my Black History Month series for the rest of this month. And we're on day number two. All right. And we're going to talk about Ed Johnson. Right. Styles Hutchins. And Randolph Miller. All right. And again, here's the book. African-Americans of Chattanooga, a history of unsung heroes. All right. Chattanooga, Tennessee has some black history that I think you guys should know about. All right. So the first one I'm going to go into is Ed Johnson. All right. We're going to read about Ed Johnson today. And then we're going to go into we're going to do Ed Johnson first. We're going to do Styles Hutchins and then we're going to last do Randolph Miller. All right. So let's get started with Ed Johnson. All right. Get this up here. 
All right. Ed Johnson, his lynching launched federalism. All right. His lynching launched federalism. All right. Unfortunately, not every Chattanooga African-American whose life impacted the United States was able to make that impact in a positive way. This sad fact especially applied to the life of Ed Johnson. On Monday, March 19, 1906, Ed Johnson, a young African-American male living in Chattanooga, Tennessee, was hanged on the Walnut Street Bridge by a white mob bent on justice. All right. I'm going to pull up the um, Walnut Street Bridge, different images of the Walnut Street Bridge as it probably looks today. And it's still functional. All right. There it is. That's the Walnut Street Bridge. All right. In Chattanooga, Tennessee. So that's what we're talking about today. All right. Again, Ed Johnson in, uh, on, on Monday, March 19, 1906, Ed Johnson, a young African-American male living in Chattanooga, Tennessee, was hanged on the Walnut Street Bridge by a white mob bent on justice. And this bridge is walked on every day, even now. And folks, I bet you a lot of folks don't even know that Ed Johnson was hung off of this bridge. All right. I'm going to pull up another video there. There's another uh angle from the bridge that's a it's a walking bridge all right and so let me continue on here johnson had been accused arrested tried and convicted of raping a young white woman by the name of nevada taylor and although she had never had the opportunity to see her rapist and therefore could not positive positively identify him he was hanged anyway. All right. As I'm talking and reading this, I'm going to change the images of the um, the bridge. All right. So let me go over this again about this Walnut Street Bridge. All right. Johnson, that's Ed Johnson, had been accused, arrested, tried, and convicted of raping a young white woman by the name of Nevada Taylor. And although she had never had the opportunity to see her rapist and therefore could not positively identify him, he was hanged anyway. All right. Born in 1882, Johnson was not originally from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Very little is known about him, his family or where they came from. Very little known about them. He lived with his father, who was called Skinbone because of his skinny frame. Johnson also had a sister, but it is unknown whether she also lived with their father. Johnson did not have much of an education and reportedly never even finished the fourth grade. He had no special skills, preferring to work with his hands. He enjoyed carpentry and performing such work as roofing and janitorial duties. It is also known that he had that he helped someone do roofing work for two churches and that he also assisted in working on additions to three houses. In addition, Johnson was known to work in the last chance saloon from time to time, performing such duties as mopping 
and tending to the pool tables. Most of the time, he exchanged his manner, his manual labor, excuse me. Most of the time he exchanged his manual labor for food and a place to sleep. Johnson's simple life changed the night young Nevada Taylor started out for home after a long day's work. Taylor lived near the Forest Hills Cemetery at the foot of Lookout Mountain, even though her home was well within sight and shouting distance when the attack occurred. No one in the neighborhood saw or heard anything. Someone simply slipped up behind her and tightened a leather strap around her neck. She quickly lost consciousness, and when she awoke, her clothing was disheveled. Only later, as a doctor examined her in the safety of her home, of her own home, did she discover that she had been raped. All right. Um, Taylor, Taylor had not seen her attacker, so she had no idea whether he was white or black. She didn't have any idea if he was white or black, her attacker that raped her or supposedly raped her. At first, nothing came of the case, but when a reward of $375 was offered, a white witness quickly came forward and said he saw Johnson in that particular area around the time of the rape, all right? Unfortunately for Johnson, the moment he was identified as being in the area, his fate was sealed, all right? He insisted on his innocence, but no one was interested in hearing his side of the story. All right. He was quickly appointed two trial lawyers, but they had never even handled a criminal case before. All right. The lawyers tried to do right by Johnson. They immediately requested enough time to adequately investigate and, re and research the case, but their request was promptly denied. All right. A mom... A, excuse me, a mob had attempted to lynch Johnson during this time, but Judge McReynolds, who presided over the proceedings, had sent him to Nashville to be certain he lived to go to trial. The night of this first lynching attempt, two members of the unruly mob were accidentally shot and one was stabbed in the frenzy to get Johnson. In an attempt to calm the crowd and keep them from further hurting themselves, Judge McReynolds allowed five men to accompany him through the jail to prove that Johnson was no longer there. Once the men were satisfied, they dispersed. As unruly as they had been, not a single member of the mob was arrested. All right. <laughs> Check that out. As the trial drew near, an all white jury was chosen, which was definitely no coincidence. The evidence indicated that the judge and the court officials had taken measures to be certain that no black man would be called to serve in the case. Hmm. This, of course, was a violation of the 14th Amendment. Which stated that any states or counties that systemically kept black people out of the jury pool were violating the Equal Protection Clause. Nevertheless, Johnson was quickly tried by the all-white jury and was convicted and sentenced to death for the crime of rape. Now, remember earlier I said that uh, Nevada Taylor, which was the white uh, female victim, 
um, had no idea if the suspect was white or black. All right. And then all of a sudden this witness popped up once there was a reward for or offer for three hundred and seventy five dollars. All of a sudden the witness popped up and said, yeah, I seen Ed Johnson in the area. OK. Nevertheless, Johnson was quickly tried by the all white jury and was convicted and sentenced to death for the crime of rape. Soon after his conviction, Skinbone, which is Ed Johnson's father, his father, approached attorneys Noah Walter Pardon and Styles Linton Hutchins. Interesting. All right. Because we're going to talk about Styles Hutchins in a little bit. So again, Skinbone, his father, Ed Johnson's father, approached attorneys Noah Walter Pardon and Styles Linton Hutchins and asked them to appeal Ed's conviction. They did, traveling to the Supreme Court to argue for a stay of execution until the facts of the case could be investigated. This act, arguing for a stay of execution before the Supreme Court, set several precedents. First of all, this was the first time an African-American, Noah Pardon, in this case, had ever argued for a stay of execution in the Supreme Court. All right. This was also the first time that a stay of execution was granted for an African-American. Additionally, it marked the first time that an African-American was designated a lead counsel in a Supreme Court case. As fate would have it, however, Noah Pardon would never get to argue the case before the Supreme Court justices because Johnson was lynched anyway. On that fateful night, the lynch mob began marching from the St. Elmo area. Y'all in Tennessee, Chattanooga, Tennessee, y'all know where St. Elmo is. St. Elmo area all the way to the courthouse. Word spread quickly that the mob was approaching, but nothing was done. These men were furious that the Supreme Court had agreed to a stay of execution. In their minds, outsiders were trying to influence the way they meted out or meted out justice to the Negroes in their own city, and this was unacceptable. The men burst through the jail doors and reportedly sent Sheriff Ship to the restroom. Then they dragged Johnson out, beat him, marched him to the Walnut Street Bridge. And I'm gonna pull up that picture. Marched him to the Walnut Street Bridge and hanged him. The lynching was a brutal one because Johnson did not die right away. The men eventually opened fire on him. Sheriff Joseph 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 F. Ship was accused of conspiring with the mob to kill Ed Johnson. According to various accounts, Sheriff Ship knew a mob was forming to lynch Ed hours before he was killed but refused to send guard reinforcements to the jail and failed to do anything to disperse the crowd. When the mob arrived at the jail, they simply suggested that Ship go to the bathroom and remain there, and he took their advice without protest. Johnson was left unprotected and fell victim to the mob. Sheriff Ship was later tried for his role in the lynching by federal by the federal government he served 90 years in prison for a conspiracy involving murder involving a murder 
his trial and conviction would make him a local hero in Chattanooga, whose white citizens insisted he had done nothing wrong. He returned to Chattanooga to a shower of praise on January 30th, 1910. All right. And so the images I'm showing you are the pictures of the Walnut Street Bridge. This is the walking bridge where Ed Johnson was hung from. All right. Showing you different angles of this bridge in Chattanooga, Tennessee. All right. These are the different images. So for all you folks who um, catch this broadcast and for those who decide to share this out, a lot of you are walking on a bridge that hung a black man who they could not prove raped anybody. All right. And then, of course, a mob came into the jail and uh, the sheriff just went along with their request to just go move out the way and didn't try to protect Ed Johnson until trial came. And so the mob ended up grabbing Ed Johnson out the jail cell, beat him up, shot him and then hung him off this bridge. This bridge is in existence today, and people are walking across this bridge probably right now as we speak. All right. So that's your black history information on Ed Johnson, who lived in Chattanooga, Tennessee. All right. So we're going to go on to the next black history information, which is the actual attorney who was one of the attorneys that tried to go on and um, ask for an appeal in Ed Johnson's behalf. OK, so we're going to talk about Styles Linton Hutchins. All right. Do you know what you're listening to? You're listening to Thoughts of the Week. Oh, how's that? All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to talk about Styles Linton Hutchins. Styles Linton Hutchins. He was one of the attorneys who um, Ed Johnson, who was hung off the Walnut Street Bridge. I'm going to pull up that bridge again. This is people walk on this bridge to this day in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Ed Johnson was hung on this bridge, accused of rape or of raping a white woman named Nevada Taylor. All right. There was no actual evidence and he wasn't protected in uh until trial came because a mob had come and um, grabbed him out the jail cell and the sheriff that was in charge of making sure that ed johnson was protected didn't do didn't do that job so this is how we get into styles hutchins because styles hutchins was one of the attorneys that ed johnson's father who they called skinbone had asked them if they can appeal Ed's conviction. All right. So I'm going to pull up the picture of Styles Hutchins and we're going to get into him. All right. So this is Styles Hutchins. Okay. All right. First, Styles Hutchins is the first African American admitted to the Georgia Bar, first Chattanooga African American admitted to a state office. All right. So y'all seeing right now the picture of Styles Hutchins. Styles Linton Hutchins was born on November 21, 1852 in Lawrenceville, Georgia. 
All right. His father's great talent as an artist brought much money into the home and Hutchins was able to enjoy a good college college education because of it. OK, he completed his studies at Atlanta University and devoted his time to teaching until 1871. At that time, Hutchins exchanged his teaching abilities for a position as principal of the Knox Institute in Athens, Georgia. Under his expert supervision, the institute flourished, increasing to the size of 600 students and seven teachers. Okay. In 1873, Hutchins resigned from his position as principal and moved to South Carolina, where he earned enough money to enter the University of Columbia, South Carolina's law department. He graduated in 1876 and was admitted to practice before the, the Supreme Court of South Carolina. He later served as a judge in that same state, but soon resigned because of the politics of the day. He then moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and demanded to be allowed to practice law there. Georgia legislator had previously passed an act requiring that lawyers from other states undergo an examination at the discretion of the presiding judge before they could practice. This way, the legislator could keep unwanted lawyers, such as men of color, aka black men, from practicing. Hutchins fought this racial opposition for six months and was finally admitted to the bar. He went down on record as the first African-American ever to be admitted to the Georgia bar. By 1881, Hutchins had grown tired of Georgia's Georgia customs and moved to Chattanooga, Tennessee, where he, where he immediately began to practice law. Although white lawyers often refer to him as flamboyant and rebellious, he did hold the esteem and admiration of both judges and members of the bar. In 1882, Hutchins joined other African-Americans in Chattanooga in organizing and establishing the Independent Age newspaper. He served as editor of this newspaper, which was the only newspaper whose press and outfit were owned and operated entirely by African-American men in Chattanooga. In 1886, Hutchins was elected to the Tennessee legislator, Trump, uh, triumphing over one of the most popular white Democrats of that time. This election made him the first Chattanooga African-American admitted to a state office. He held this seat until 1888 and then resumed practicing law. In 1901, Hutchins was ordained, was ordained a minister though he never assumed any ministerial duties. At the time this photograph was taken, he had practiced law for 30 years. The, the photo that you guys see right there on the screen. He had practiced law for 30 years and was considered the pioneer Negro lawyer of the South. Hutchins would go on to help Noah Pardon represent Ed Johnson, who I just spoke about, a young African-American male accused of raping a white woman. Styles Linton Hutchins, born November 21, 1852, died on September 7, 1950, a teacher, notary public, and Negro pioneer lawyer. All right. 
So that is Styles Linton Hutchins. And let me read something that's under his photograph here. You guys can see right there under his photograph. I'm going to read the little passage right there real quick. Uh, this is a 1904 photograph of attorney Styles Linton Hutchins who was the first Chattanooga African-American admitted to a state office and the first African-American admitted to the Georgia bar. The photograph is courtesy of 1904 biography and achievements of the colored citizens of Chattanooga by J. Bliss White. All right, so that is Styles L or Styles Linton Hutchins. So now let's go into Randolph Miller. Again, you're rocking with the best thoughts of the week. Let's get it. Do you know what you're listening to? You're listening to Thoughts of the Week. Oh, how's that? from uh, Malik Brown. I appreciate you. I listen to you. I listen to you, bro. Keep going. Your YouTube will get far. I appreciate you. Appreciate you, man. Thanks for the comment. All right. So let's get into Randolph Miller. And by the way, um, I was just going to do these three, but I see right after Randolph Miller is Noah Pardon. And we talked about Noah Pardon as well. So I'm going to also go into Noah Pardon. So we're going to get a little, we're going to do a little extra today. All right. So we're definitely going to talk about Noah Pardon. I didn't realize he was right after um, Randolph Miller. And he was definitely involved with Styles Hutchins and Ed Johnson together. All right. So let me do that real quick. We're going to talk about Randolph Miller. And here's a picture of Randolph Miller. All right, so let's get into it. Randolph Miller, ex-slave and editor of The Blade, a nationally syndicated newspaper. According to Standard History of Chattanooga by Charles D. McGuffey, Randolph Miller was born a slave in Fluvanna County, Virginia in 1842 and belonged to Dr. Robert W. Curran. When he was nine years old, he was taken to Georgia with a drove or the quote drove of Negroes and sold to Andrew Jackson Miller. When General William T. Sherman's army marched through Georgia, they took young Randolph Miller with them. Miller came to Chattanooga in 1864 as a ward of the army and stayed on after the Civil War. He worked several odd jobs finally landing a job with the Chattanooga Daily Gazette. His job was to turn the press by muscular power. He later went to the American Union to try out his skill as a pressman operating a Washington press. Miller returned to Chattanooga after the Daily Times was established. He worked for the Daily Times and the commercial, finally landing a job with the Times as a pressman. He was taught to use a power press by George M. Day, a white man, and after he learned the inner workings of a newspaper, he soon launched his own paper. All right. 
he called his paper the blade now i wonder if the movie the blade was named after this who knows they might have done some race research back then who knows although miller was considered eccentric and illiterate he soon became one of the most quoted editors in the entire country thousands of his quotes which were known as gems from the blade and flashes from from the blade were reprinted now i'm going to read that again <laughs> all right he called his paper the blade although miller was considered he was considered eccentric and illiterate he soon became one of the most quoted editors in the entire country thousands thousands of his quotes which were known as or called his quotes were called gems from the blade or they were called flashes from the blade they were reprinted so other people in other newspapers were reprinting his quotes his quotes were so fire and so gangster they had to take it and, re and reprint it all right putting it like that miller was a fiery outspoken man he was like an early prototype for the civil rights leaders of the 1960s and 1970s and he was certainly not afraid to speak out against the prejudice injustice and segregation theories of the early days all right keep that in mind he was not afraid to speak out against prejudice injustice and segregation theories of the early days all right in july 1905 he joined forces with other chattanooga african-american businessmen to launch a streetcar boycott against the jim crow laws regarding transportation not knowing that this boycott would be considered an important move for early tennessee civil rights and would be celebrated in the history books over 100 years later in 1905 segregation laws or jim crow laws as they were called had already begun spreading across the state laws were already in place regarding the railway system and when they spread to the streetcar systems of tennessee in 1905 african-americans throughout the state began to speak of organizing boycotts in protest in fact there was not a major city in the state of tennessee that did not experience some type of public display from the african-american communities and their reaction to the extension of jim crow Chattanooga was no exception, no exception. Miller and other Chattanooga Ameri African American businessmen planned to start their own bus company so that African Americans could be transported with dignity and respect. All right, Chattanooga, you need to know this history. A lot of kids out there is wilding out, from my understanding, and yet you have this rich history of black businessmen putting together wanting to put together bus companies and standing up against injustices all right you need to think about that all right i'm gonna read that again miller and other chattanooga african-american businessmen plan to start their own bus company so that african-americans could be transported with dignity and respect they began by originating a system of hack lines that traveled between the city and the outlying black communities of Churchville, St. Elmo, Fort Cheatham, and Tannery Flats. A lot of you know where that's at right now or where it was at at that time. The first day of operation fell on July 16th, 
with what some in the city described as three vehicles of sorry appearance that carted members of African-American community about the city. It is unknown whether the vehicles were as sorry as they were described, but it is known that Miller and the other hack operators found a loyal patronage among Chattanooga African-Americans. The hack lines, the hack line vehicles ran almost to capacity and Miller and his partners were so encouraged by this patronage that they applied for a charter on August 29. Their charter named their new transportation company, the Transfer Omnibus Motor Car Company. With an initial investment of $10,000, they devised a workable plan to replace the hack lines with several 40 passenger motor cars. Of course, they would need much more than the initial $10,000 investment to obtain the motor cars. They had thought to follow a similar plan as the one that had found success in Nashville, Tennessee. They would rely on small investments from a large number of black stockholders and would obtain the money they needed to make the purchases. Unfortunately, many of Chattanooga's African-American leaders of that day were slow to give their public support to this bold venture. And this greatly hindered the success of the new transportation company. Still, all was not lost. The four hack lines had steady had a steady flow of customers. These customers have found their treatment on the public streetcars unbearable and preferred to pay the five cent fare on the hack lines. This source of income could have eventually helped the businessmen reach their goal. But white officials felt that Miller and his partners were promoting the spirit of resentment, craziness, and they made no secret about the fact that they wanted to close off these funds. Then County Humane Officer W.J. Eddings announced that he intended, intended to prosecute the hack operators for, quote, working old, worn out animals from early morning until late at night. So basically, um, they're just coming up with excuses to try to stop these black men from their um, business from from prospering, basically what it came down to. All right. Um, OK, from hacking one out and only half feeding them. And it became glaringly apparent that the company would not be able to stand under such opposition. The dream of an independent transportation system had been effectively crushed. But Randolph Miller was not afraid to speak out. In an October 1905 issue of The Blade, he said, they have taken our part of the library. They have moved our school to the frog pond. They have passed the Jim Crow laws. They have knocked us out of the jury box. They have played the devil generally. And what in thunder more will they do? No one knows. So he uh, Randolph Miller was a guy who spoke up, wasn't afraid to speak up against a lot of folks, a lot of injustice. So let me go on. And so the transfer omnibus motor car company died after, died away before its founders could determine whether it would be able to meet its high aspirations. The fiery Randolph Miller died in 1915, but the Chattanooga Times continued to reprint excerpts from his editorials. Today, Randolph M. Miller's historical marker is proudly displayed in front 
of the beautiful Bessie Smith Museum, African-American History Museum located on MLK Boulevard in Chattanooga, Tennessee. All right, let me show you this picture right here. Chattanooga, Tennessee, y'all need to know your history, man. So here's the marker here regarding Randolph Miller. All right. So Randolph Miller was a person who definitely spoke up against any injustice, wasn't afraid at all, wasn't afraid of white people, wasn't afraid to speak up against what white people were doing. All right. So that's Randolph Miller. Now I'm going to give you guys a bonus because I see that right after Randolph Miller came, Noah Pardon, who I spoke about earlier with uh, regarding Ed Johnson and Styles Hutchins. So we're going to get into um, Noah Parker. All right. You're rocking with the best thoughts of the week. Let's get it. Do you know what you're listening to? You're listening to Thoughts of the Week. Oh, how's that? All right, so since I didn't have it planned to do Noah Pardon, I'm going to show you a picture from the book. This is him right here. All right, this is his picture right here. That's Noah Pardon. He was in real quick. He was also he was involved in trying to um, prolong Ed Johnson from being um, lynched and prosecuted after being after Ed Johnson was accused of raping a white woman named Nevada Taylor. And unfortunately, although there was no evidence, um, there were a lot of there was a white mob who didn't like the fact that. Noah Pardon here in this book here, Noah Pardon and Styles L. Hutchins went to the Supreme Court to try to uh, get an appeal. So the white people didn't like the fact that those two lawyers went to the Supreme Court to try to appeal um, to appeal for Ed Johnson. So what they did, the white mob, they went on and snatched ed johnson out of the jail cell and there was a sheriff there let me get the sheriff's name again who um this sheriff ended up getting prosecuted if i'm not mistaken sheriff joseph f ship was accused of conspiring with the mob to kill ed johnson because he didn't bother to um try to get the uh the mob the white mob away or, or supposedly he had, he had a knowledge. It was said he had knowledge that he was informed that they were coming to get Ed Johnson. And so he didn't do nothing about it. And I think he was end up getting prosecuted for that. All right. So we're going to go into Noah Pardon. And I'm going to read that. And then we're going to get up out of here, man. So Noah Pardon. Again, let me put the picture up because, like I said, I wasn't planning on doing anything on uh, Noah Pardon. But since he was connected to Styles Hutchins and Ed Johnson, we're going to add him in there. All right. So that's his picture right there. All right. So Noah Pardon, the first African-American lawyer to argue and win a stay of execution from the Supreme Court. There you go. Mm -hmm. Noah Walter Pardon was born in Floyd County, Georgia in 1865. 
By age seven, both his parents were dead and he was found abandoned on the doorstep of a Georgia orphanage. Pardon came to Chattanooga in 1804. I mean, excuse me. Pardon came to Chattanooga in 1884 and entered Howard High School in 1885. As a teenager and young adult, he worked days in a tobacco field and nights in a factory to save money for law school. He graduated from Howard High School after five years of hard work. And in late 1890, he entered Central Tennessee College of Nashville's law department. All right. Let me see here. Excuse me. Law department. Pardon graduated law school at the head of his class and then returned to Chattanooga to set up practice. He was admitted to practice law in all courts in Tennessee and the state Supreme Court in 1894. He was admitted to practice in the United States Supreme Court in 1895. Chattanooga's legal and civilian community referred to Noah Pardon as a troublemaker and community agitator. Maker and uh, excuse me, because he fought vigorously for his clients. So because he wanted to fight for the clients he was representing, he was labeled a troublemaker because he wanted to stand up for his clients and an agitator. All right. A community agitator. He was notoriously passionate. He was a notoriously passionate man and cried with the families when his clients were sentenced to prison. And he even cited complete chapters from Psalms and Proverbs or used parables from the New Testament to argue his point to the juries, to the juries. Pardon believed strongly in God and often kneeled in the back of the courtroom and prayed with his clients. He took on giants like insurance companies that sold policies to African-Americans, then routinely denied their claims because they believe African-Americans were too poor to sue them. Pardon usually won his cases, appealing to the white jurors to ask themselves the vital question that if the companies were allowed to defraud African-Americans, who could be next on the list except white people? For all of this devotion to his clients, Pardon often received only a cooked meal for his payment. This was because most African-Americans of that day were too poor to pay for representation. And those whites who were wealthy enough to pay for to pay would never go to an African-American for representation in the first place. So pardon's practice was limited to those of his own race, most of whom just didn't earn enough money if they worked at all to pay to pay him what he deserved. All right. Pardon rectified this dilemma by becoming one of the earliest lawyers on record to use the contingency method of collecting fees for representation. He would take on a case against such culprits as the large insurance companies mentioned earlier, free of charge. If he won the case, which he usually did, he was entitled to a predetermined percentage of the award, which he collected before the client ever received the money. If you lost the case, the client could then go ahead and serve him the hot home cooked meal at their family's dinner table as payment. Pardon would go on to represent Ed Johnson, Ed Johnson, who I mentioned earlier, 
a young African-American male accused of raping a white woman in 1906. When Johnson was convicted of the crime and sentenced to die, Pardon became part of a team of lawyers who filed an appeal with the United States Supreme Court for a stay of execution until the facts could be investigated. Pardon himself argued for the stay of execution. This act in, it, in itself was an historic event. This act in itself was an historic event. Because before that time, no other African-American had, had ever been allowed to argue anything before the Supreme Court justices. Pardon's argument was most effective and Judge Harlan, excuse me, and Justice Harlan agreed to the stay. So Pardon was able to uh, get that stay for Ed Johnson. He even designated Pardon lead counsel, another historic event since no African-American had ever been considered a lead counsel before that time. Unfortunately, when the citizens of Chattanooga heard about the stay, a mob formed and took matters into their own hands. They hanged Johnson on the Walnut Street Bridge, and I'm gonna pull that Walnut Street Bridge up again. All right, this is the Walnut Street Bridge, is still operating today, all right? Let me get back here, find my spot. Excuse me, folks. Unfortunately, when the citizens of Chattanooga heard about the stay, a mob formed and took matters into their own hands. They hanged Johnson on the Walnut Street Bridge, the bridge you guys are watching on the screen right now, before Pardon could argue the case. Neither Noah Walter Pardon nor Styles Linton Hutchins ever returned to Chattanooga, Tennessee after the lynching. Pardon had been in Washington, D.C. arguing the case and Hutchins had been out of the city when the lynching occurred. Both attorneys received word of the lynching and were told of the violent rumors circulating that they themselves would be lynched the moment they showed their faces in the city. Both Pardon and Hutchins moved their families to Oklahoma. Despite the outcome of the Ed Johnson case, Noah Pardon's law career was an outstanding one. It is documented that he won scores of lawsuits. A white lawyer from Chattanooga once told a local newspaper, even though he, Noah Pardon, is black and they're white, Noah Pardon develops a bond with a jury faster than any lawyer I have ever seen. He makes jurors like him and trust him and in return, they like and trust his clients. All right. Unfortunately, there is not yet a historical marker in the city of Chattanooga that honors the life, contributions, and memories of attorney Noah Walter Pardon. You see here in this picture. All right. So far, there's no marker to. Um, display his uh, contributions, all right? And to honor his life and contributions and memory of an attorney. So there you have it, man. That's, uh, I did four, I was doing only doing three, but I seen that Noah Pardon was also in here. So I definitely wanted to do that as well. And all of this came from, again, the book. Here's the book right here, African-Americans of Chattanooga, a History of Unsung Heroes by Rita Lorraine Hubbard. 
So you guys be looking out for that. Uh, actually, you guys can go to the website. The website, uh, hist historypress.net. Historypress.net. And then um, that website will actually change names. All right. So don't get alarmed if you type in that address and it changes names. All right. So let me type that in real quick. History historypress.net when you type that um, web address in it'll turn into arcadiapublishing.com all right arcadiapublishing.com and i'm going to pull that site up on the page so you guys can see it okay so this is what the site looks like when you type in um things that historypress.net yeah, when you type in historypress.net, this website will pull up, okay? And then what you need to do is just click on books. And then on the side, you will see African-American. You click in that box, and then those books will come up. And so what will happen there is you need to scroll down. I found it on number three because they got numbers on the bottom. But, and there it is right there okay so you guys uh get that book purchase it and get some black history out of chattanooga tennessee all right so i appreciate y'all man that's another black history month series information i hope it uh it might be something that a lot of people didn't know i'm pretty sure because i'm going to be doing a lot of stuff that people some things some history information you guys probably will know i'm gonna try to find some stuff that it's not much known because there's a lot out there. All right. So, again, I appreciate y'all for checking out Thoughts of the Week podcast. And we're going to continue tomorrow and the rest of this month with the Black History Month series. As you see on the screen, the Black History Month, we're going to start, you're going to do it again tomorrow. All right. We're going to try to do it all the way through Black History Month for the month of February. So again, I appreciate you guys. And with that being said, you are rocking with the best thoughts of the week. I'm out of here. Peace.